So this is the eighth sermon in a series called Rockstar, the David Saga. The brilliant English novelist Thomas Hardy said that the David story is the most perfect example of prose narrative that he knows anything about. He said it was full of power, pathos, and artistic cunning, and I think he's right about that. Thomas Hardy knew how to tell his story. And I wanted to talk to you about David as a father this morning. It's a beautiful story, but it's also a long sprawling story. It starts in 2 Samuel chapter 13 and continues all the way to chapter 19. It's a sprawling story. And I spent a couple of hours this week trying to synopsize it for the purposes of worship and wasn't happy with it. And then I wrote my sermon and discovered that I had actually written quite an efficient precy in the sermon. So I'll tell you the story then. And right now we'll hear from Cesar Franck's version of Psalm 150. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So great biographies can never be hagiographies, right? Unless you're writing about the Catholic saints, great biographies can never be hero worship. The biographer's task is to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth with light and shadow, success and failure, virtue and flaw to give us a real human blood and bone and sinew subject. So that, for example, in his biographies of Albert Einstein and Steve Jobs, Walter Isaacson might remind us that the very qualities that might make us a brilliant physicist or a spectacular inventor might also trip us up at home. Albert Einstein was cruel to his first wife, unfaithful to his second, and never visited his troubled schizophrenic son for the last 30 years of his life. When his girlfriend became pregnant with a daughter named Lisa, Mr. Jobs denied paternity, even though a test proved that he was indeed the father. Her name was Lisa, and he named a computer after her, but even after Apple made him rich, he paid Lisa's mother $500 a month in child support. The Hebrew historian who crafted the David saga is a great biographer because he never flinches from David's failures and flaws. He wants to give us a real bone and blood and sinew protagonist, the brew of false and true that David actually lived. And as with Einstein and Jobs, the very qualities that made David a brave giant slayer, a top 40 rock star, a successful king, and a daring empire builder also made him a flawed father. Before he hooked up with Bathsheba, David had six sons with six different women. He seems to have been a bit indifferent about their existence. He also had a daughter named Tamar. He actually probably had many daughters, but Tamar is the only one who gets a name. She is the half-sister of David's oldest son, Amnon, and a full sister to David's third son, Absalom. David's oldest son, Amnon, falls in hopeless lust with his half-sister and tricks her into being alone with him and forces himself upon her. Powerful men taking advantage of vulnerable women did not start with Charlie Rose and Matt Lauer. This enrages Tamar's full brother Absalom, who traps Amnon in a corner, just as Amnon had trapped Tamar in a tight place, and kills him. Father David is furious 
that one of his sons would kill another of his sons. The Bible does not tell us what David thought about the rape of his daughter. David is so furious, he banishes Absalom from the capital city and the palace for three years. For three years, Absalom is essentially unfathered. As soon as his exile is over and he comes back to Jerusalem, Absalom plants himself in the town square and starts receiving all the kingdom's malcontents, collecting quite an impressive retinue with the intention of unseating his father from the throne, just like his father before him. His attempted usurpation becomes so dangerous that King David has to flee Jerusalem with a few of his most loyal soldiers. And so one way this story might be God's word for us is the gentle reminder that cliches become cliches because they are true. Like father, like son, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. History repeats itself. Our chickens always come home to roost. Garbage in, garbage out. Because David's sons are chips off the old block. If Amnon wants a woman, he will take her, no matter how shameful it might be, just like his father before him. Absalom's like David too. He's handsome, just like his father. Dangerously handsome. Too handsome for his own good. He's very proud of his luxuriant locks. The Bible tells us that he would cut his hair once a year and the trimmings weighed four pounds. And he's charming like his father. Absalom could sell ice cubes to Eskimos or Coles in Newcastle or bacon to Orthodox Jews or Jack Daniels to Saudi Muslims. He's ambitious and he's impatient like his father. If he wants the throne, he will just take it. Legal succession be damned, just like his father. Like father, like son. History repeats itself. And so, if you are a mother or a father, Be vigilant because they are watching you. They are watching everything you do. They might not realize it and you might not notice, but their surveillance is as vigilant as the CIA's. Nothing shapes character like a mother or a father. Not a best friend, not even an iPhone. So be vigilant. They're watching Well, you know the rest of the story. Father and son each collect vast, sprawling armies who face off against each other in a dense forest. David stays home from the battlefield and tells his commander-in-chief, Joab, to deal gently with his son Absalom. Absalom's untrained, inexperienced troops are no match for David's tough, weathered veterans of a hundred military skirmishes. In the thick of battle, Absalom's mule gallops beneath a long-hanging branch, and he is undone by his pride and his joy. His hair gets tangled in the branches, and there he hangs, suspended, says the Bible, between heaven and earth. Joab ignores David's instructions and stabs him to death. It would have been so easy to take him alive as a prisoner of war. But to Joab, Absalom is a traitor, not just to his father, but to his fatherland as well. A usurper usurper to the throne. A messenger brings David the good news of this definitive, glorious victory. But David doesn't care. How goes it with the young man Absalom, he asks. And the messenger says, May may Absalom's fate face every last one of your enemies, my king. And then the words which have 
echoed down the corridors of time for 3,000 years. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, my son, Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. My son, my son, Absalom, five times, my son, five times. David's desolation is so comprehensive and crippling, he can't even thank the victorious soldiers. He goes into his royal bedroom and holes up there for days, and Joab, the commander-in-chief, is just furious. Snap out of it, your majesty. It looks like you value the traitor over the loyalists. It looks to me as if were Absalom alive and we were all dead, you'd be happy. Now go out there and salute the troops. Now, General Joab has a point, right? And yet he also illustrates a common reality in human commerce then and now that the world just doesn't know how to deal with the grief-stricken, right? I don't know how many parishioners have told me, (coughs) grief-stricken parishioners have told me that it seems to them as if their friends are avoiding them. It's not as if they're unwilling to share the sorrow. It's just that nobody knows what to say and that silence is unbearable. Kay Redfield Jameson writes these most beautiful books. She's an expert on bipolar disorder. She's a psychologist at Johns Hopkins University. Three months after her husband died, a colleague came up to her and asked her to write an article for a scholarly journal. And Dr. Jameson said, my husband died. And he said, It's been three months. The world doesn't know how to deal with the brokenhearted. And this is especially true if the grief is complicated. Do you know that this is a thing? This is a a diagnosis in the world of psychology, complicated grief. So simple grief might be if you lose someone who is dearer to you than life itself, And your relationship with this departed person was so wonderful that the grief hurts very bad. But the days or the weeks or the months go by and pretty soon you notice that you wake up one morning and it's not the first thing you think about. And then you stop making coffee for two. And then you laugh more often. And you mean it. And then after a year or two or three or ten, there are more smiles over the happy memories than tears over the loss. It doesn't seem simple when you're in it, but it's a lot better than complicated grief which might follow a sudden and unexpected death or a young death or a long, lingering, difficult death or a death that left unfinished business or a fractured relationship or, and here's why I bring it up in the middle of the David story, what if someone were responsible for that death? What if someone's killed by a drunk driver, for instance, or any accident, any auto accident for that matter? What if your child dies of an overdose and it turns out that his best friend supplied the drugs? This is an old, old movie, but I can bring it up because it's set right around here on the North Shore on Lake Michigan. 1980, Robert Redford's film, Ordinary People. Do you remember that film, The Death of a Teenager? and the complicated grief it elicits. The Mary Tyler Moore character, the Donald Sutherland character, the grief is complicated, and the grief of Timothy Hutton's character is so complicated he tries to end his own life. 
complicated grief lasts longer, digs deeper, hurts harder, and unhinges your existence more thoroughly than the other kind. And David's grief is anything but simple because he had a role to play in his son's death, right? Because his unscrupulous use of the sword for his own selfish purposes, his indifference to his family, his political intrigues and military machinations, his vaulting, irrepressible ambition, all these set the stage for Absalom's short, sad, errant life. So many opportunities to model what it means to be a person of honor and integrity. So many missed opportunities. And so when David weeps for Absalom, maybe he's weeping for himself too. All those missed opportunities, all that indifference, all that royal self-centeredness. Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. David means it. We believe him. We believe him because every parent in this room would say the same thing in that situation. Some of us have had to say that. Would that I had died instead of you. David means it. His love is real. It's not false. It's just late. And so I'll end with a piece of advice and a story. The advice... Love them now. Love them while you can. And the story, started thinking about this story yesterday, all this deranged malice in Pittsburgh. I am so disconsolate over that that I have no words to share with you. It just seems like we're going backwards. It just seems as if Someone or something has unchained these sleeping demons of malice that have been within us for a long time. And it elicited some very difficult memories for me. Every night at bedtime, Scarlett Lewis would cuddle up in bed with her six-year-old son, Jesse, and she'd slip her hand underneath his pajama tops and feel his beating heart. And she had the same prayer every night. Dear Jesus, thank you for this one wonderful warm body. Please don't take him from me. I know you can any time, but please don't. She said that every night, and then she found out why. Because on December 14, 2012, Adam Lanza shot Jesse dead, six years old, at his classroom in Sandy Hook Elementary School. Scarlett Lewis says, I remember seeing Jesse sleeping in his bed every night, and I'd think, I have to make a phone call. But then I'd remind myself not to, not to pass up this opportunity to kiss that cheek. So I always would. Every night I would kiss that cheek. Never pass up an opportunity like that. She says those moments are gifts. She takes out a piece of polished glass out of a plastic bag and she holds it up. Looks like a quartz crystal. It's a shattered shard from the window in Jesse's classroom at Sandy Hook. And it has become for her a holy relic. It reminds her of her son and she says, His light is so strong. He is with me yet. So, Love them now while you can. As usual, Frederick Buechner says it best, 
David meant it, of course. If he could have done the boys dying for him, he would have done it. If he could have paid the price for the boys' betrayal, he would have paid it. If he could have given his own life to make the boy alive again, he would have given it. But even a king can't do things like that. As later history would prove, it takes a God in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.